Hi, and welcome to Kleinversations, Klein ISD's podcast about all things teaching and learning. I'm Monica Schallenberger, and I'll be the host for each episode, and my guests will be rotating educators from all over our school district. This podcast is for anyone wanting to expand their knowledge about teaching and learning, and hear our conversations about the journey of educators being joyful, reflective, transparent, and deliberate about applying their learning to transform the world. My guest today is Rakina Romes, who is our District Foster Care and Crisis Intervention Coordinator and Liaison. She's a specialist in school psychology and a senior advanced level crisis prevention and intervention instructor. Rakina also holds a Master of Science in Psychology and a minor in Sociology. She has an extensive education career serving 16 years as a school psychologist, LSSP, case manager, department chair, and district behavioral coordinator that has led her where she is today. She is passionate about equity, educational access, trauma-informed care, foster care, special education, reaching the underprivileged, and so much more. Today, her and I discuss the complexities of trauma, how it affects our students, and how to serve them well. I'm also so passionate about this content, so you'll see it's one of our longer conversation episodes, and we could have kept talking if there was more time. Take a listen now. Hi, Rakina. Hi, how are you? Good. We made it on here with our technology. Welcome to yes. the podcast officially. Great. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So we'll go ahead and get started with one celebration that you have from the district in connection to teaching and learning. Oh, I'm super excited about our COVID-19 foster care resource page um, in Beyond just having community access and uh, parents and teachers accessing it, TEA actually featured us. Oh, yay. Uh, our, yeah, we just got featured for the Foster Care COVID-19 resources page in the shout out that went in, out for May for this entire state of Texas. Hey, that's a celebration for sure. Congratulations. I'm so happy yeah. that you created that for our people Um, especially our parents and students that are in foster care. So that's awesome that you created that toolkit. So yeah, congratulations. I wanted to have you come on because I've just enjoyed personal conversations with you about the work that you do in our district. And um, you've become one of my favorite people in Klein ISD because the work is, it's so important. And I, and so many people, including myself, really until I got to central office, I wasn't really sure well, we didn't have this position yet, but you right. just educated me and opened my eyes to some of the unfortunate situations that our kids are in and how we're constantly needing to reshape and be culturally responsive to those kids in our classrooms. Um, and so it was just a no brainer for me to kind of pivot for this conversations episode to have you on because of your extensive background and working and advocating for foster care and orphan children in our school district. So when you're thinking about the complex trauma that those students have experienced, how do you think it will be heightened by this collective trauma of global pandemic? Because I've had this conversation a lot in the last few days of, you know, some people don't know they're experiencing trauma. Some people do. But then on top of that, you've got the kids who are in really unfortunate and terrible situations where it is not puppies and roses at home, depending on the different situations they're in. So how do you think 
this trauma that the kids that experienced it before will be heightened by that collective trauma of this global pandemic that we're currently in? Well, uh, you know, trauma is complex in itself, um, but most people kind of underestimate the amount of children and the number of children that actually experience trauma, including staff. And one in four children nationally experience trauma. Um, and a lot of that happens even before age four. So carrying that, carrying that information and knowing that trauma is much more prevalent than um, initially thought Going back through uh, this time of isolation, a lot of changes, unpredictability um, can trigger some things that may have been lying dormant or things that were already active. It could have, you know, heightened a lot of those uh, areas that our students were dealing with even during the school year. So it's very important to have this awareness. Um, and I think that's where you start first. It's just making sure that parents and teachers um, and staff are aware that trauma is actually real and it doesn't necessarily always have to be connected to, you know, an epidemic or something like that. But it, but these times absolutely do not help. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So those oh, changes. Was... Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you oh. go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, um, you know, Understanding one that trauma is much more prevalent as stated before, um, and that there are things that we can do to address that. When kids come back, we know that even those uh, who may not have experienced trauma before, they'll probably have some different questions about, you know, just approaching the setting again, the school setting. Uh, but for those who have experienced trauma, I think putting highlights um, on things such as reinforcing that things are safe, um, getting back into a routine that seems more consistent, um, but actually talking about it more than just going through the, you know, the regular day-to-day um, -day kinds of things will help bring that awareness. You'll being completely open to hear kids say, hey, I'm not sure about that, or I don't feel safe without being irritated by them saying that. Um, it just it just will really help us, you know, in height, uh, heighten the areas of awareness for all of our staff and our team. I love those suggestions because I think this is such a complicated path arena already. Um, I mm -hmm. so wish that I had more trauma based interventions and training as a teacher. Now I'm hyper aware of it just because of different situations and also very interested in it. And, and some of the professional learning that I've gone to now as a non-campus administrator, um, one was saying how kids who have been through significant trauma and the fact that you said one in four is just heartbreaking. That's a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. And they're saying like, it's kind of, it's kind of similar to if you're walking down the street at night and no, I'm sorry. If you're walking down the street at 10 a.m., people are walking towards you. Probably not going to think a second thought about it. You're in your neighborhood, whatever. Mm -hmm. If it's two o'clock in the morning and you see people walking towards you and you're the only one on the street and it's dark, you might have a little more fear. Mm -hmm. You're definitely more heightened to, okay, what are these people doing? Am I safe? You're asking these questions. And the session that I was in about trauma-based intervention was talking about how kids who've been through these traumatic experiences, abuse, neglect, et cetera, they're always at 2 a.m. They're yeah. not, they're functioning at 2 a.m. So we're expecting them to finish this 
assignment. Please sit down. Stop fidgeting. And they're in 2 a.m. mode. Yeah, no, certainly not to excuse poor behavior, but we do need to remember that as educators that in a regular situation outside of what we're currently in, these kids are not focused 100% on schoolwork because they are their brains have been rewired through this trauma that they've experienced as kids to react differently to situations than a kid who has become up in a stable home and in a situation that's safe. Yes. And so... Yeah, there. Do you have anything to say about that? Oh, you. I mean, you've hit on so much. Um, as you know, I'm I'm a big nerd for trauma, uh, and I absolutely love the brain. So um, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot. There's extensive research that literally talks about how the actual shape and formation of the brain is altered yes. uh, when there's trauma that the child has been exposed to. Um, I love Dr. Uh, Bruce Perry. I follow him probably religiously. Um, and he's an excellent neuropsychologist. Uh, and I've been able to uh, glean from a lot of his research and also attend a lot of his trainings. And the physical structure literally of the brain alters mm-hmm. and changes uh, in response to trauma. Most children, there's 26% of children aged four and under will experience at least one um, exposure to a traumatic um, event before age four. And what that does is it automatically starts altering how they respond to senses, how your touch is different, how their environment Mm -hmm. is looked at as a frightening place. So what it does is it causes the brain to stay in fight or flight. So for us, we may see a situation like you gave the example, we're looking at, you know, what time of night you're out. Um, I always love to use a great parking lot. So um, <laughs> for so just to make it relevant to some some of the adults. So you're you know, you're at a grocery store and it's late at night. Uh, the more lighting that there is, as you stated, you may feel more safe. Uh, but as you hear footprints, even uh, footsteps, I should say, even as people are approaching you, your body starts to respond differently. So mm-hmm. think about when someone approaches you very, very quickly, whether it be intended for a joke or or to scare you or for some you know, event that's not nice. Your body is going to either shut down, you're going to go into shock or you're going to fight or flight for a brain and trauma or freeze or freeze. Or freeze. Let yeah. me add the word freeze yes, in there. Yes, yes. Um, so for a brain and trauma, that's what our kids are experiencing all day. So the roles that we have to look at are how do we make that brain feel safe? Because it's constantly thinking that it's having to defend itself, even when you don't view the situation as threatening. So there's, there's a lot that goes on with that. There are a lot of things that we can do in the classroom to help with that, um, and I, I mean, we probably don't have enough time for me to go through all of this. I know, right? <laughs> well, and the thing, and the thing I want to say too. <laughs> yeah, and there's so, and it's if every educator, and not that people aren't doing this, I'm, I'm not stereotyping at all. I just know for me, obviously, I heard the stories when I was a teacher and a coach um, from students, and even now mentoring students that are horrible. I mean, they literally sound out of a horror movie, and. Mm-hmm. When you think about what these kids are going through, but, but it, it would change the face of education if everybody was extremely heightened and sensitive to what the kids are going to. Now, I don't think that that's synonymous with 
hall passes for poor behavior and like coddling. I know that there is a balance there. Correct. But if if people remembered some people, let me say some to be fair. If some people remember that this content that you're teaching or the classroom management structure that you have is not the most important thing to every single kid in your class. And technically, if you've got a class of 30, now here, I'm going to go with my math. Don't judge me. <laughs> that your one in four statistic would yeah. probably be around seven kids, right? Uh -huh. That's around seven kids in your class. Well, you know, again, that's a fourth right. of your class. Right. And though, and we all know if we've been teachers before, seven kids, mm -hmm. a group of seven kids in a class can change the entire dynamic Absolutely. of what that class culture looks like. And if we don't address the fourth of the students in our, in our classes that more than likely have either been through more than most of us have, or we can relate to them mm -hmm. because of the trauma that, like you're saying, if one in four is the number now, I don't know what the statistic was when we were all younger, but more than likely we've all experienced some kind of trauma as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that we can tap into a heavier side of the social economic part of education. And obviously there would be some leveling up that would need to happen and definitely professional learning because we were all not trained to be counselors. And I know for me, there's been times where I've heard kids stories and I don't know how to respond, except I'm so sorry. Like there's literally nothing for me to do. I've even talked to a counselor not too long ago and I was like can you give me some suggestions for this situation that's x y and z because I don't know really how to respond to this because I have never been close to dealing with this and this kid is 16 years old yeah um I think it's an awesome and so oh sorry <laughs> no, but you're good can you touch on like yeah. what so in what what ways can educators help support these kids that have this extra burden of the trauma outside of this pandemic when classes resume in person. And then in case we do go to an intermittent year next year, Rakina, how do you suggest they help in a virtual setting? Like how can teachers support kids virtually as well? Okay. So I think you, I mean, you brought up excellent areas and viewpoints. One, you were willing and open to hear uh, and to listen. And, and then with that wanting to learn. So I think that's one of the first steps is that we may be aware, but taking that step to actually want to have information about what to do is a great indicator that we'll be able to serve students more appropriately. The second thing I would look at is looking at the experience of the, the child through their lens. Um, I, I often tell people, try to avoid comparing traumas. Uh, that sometimes we hear a story that a child may tell us, or we may have had our own experience. Um, and sometimes we go into the areas of, well, this is more traumatic than that. So you should be able to respond differently. So I always tell people, don't compare one trauma to the next, uh, because each yeah. person is going to respond differently. You're not able to weigh their personal experience. So for our teachers, I absolutely love when they can consider the culture of the child and their environment, um, just listening and not necessarily having to validate. Because like you said, I don't expect our teachers to become their counselors or their therapists or their psychologists, but we can definitely still reach them by putting a couple of things in place. We stress relationships, and I know that that is a term that's often used, but it's different with uh, relationships with trauma. Because again, we have to go back to looking at that this is not something that's considered, um, it, it doesn't fall directly under something considered emotional disturbance. This is an actual change in the brain. So if you can look at it 
as surface level of I'm working so that I can reach how this child's brain works first, then sometimes you can allow people to be more open to welcome this child so that they don't put judgment to their behavior. So when you look at those relationships, your tone that you use with that student, whether it be online or in person, uh, when you're engaging with students and looking at their activity level, their movement, not to necessarily go straight into judgment or think that the rules that apply for sitting still, only raising your hand during certain things, these are great social skills, but we also need to be aware and open that things may vary for each child. Um, so, you know, some of those things will help us be able to approach trauma and that, you know, the way we're educating our students, having a, um, a respectful acknowledgement without condemning the child. So saying, hey, thank you for sharing that information. Just rem uh, remind you, make sure that you don't unmute your mic during the Zoom unless called on, but I'm happy that you're wanting to contribute. So we may think that those types of statements and those types of things are very minimal and some of them are good teaching practices, but they are helping keep the child's brain at a safer level. And if we view it as that, then we won't necessarily see it as cooing and giving in and that type of thing. Um, there's a huge area where I love to focus and I always say this to teachers and to staff, if we can change our focus from looking at what they are doing and start looking at why they're doing it. Um, it. It gives us a much better approach to being able to support that child. So for example, if a child is using profanity, then we may say that's the what, okay? They're cursing at their teacher, they're you know jumping up and down in front of the screen. Um, they're adding other people in on your Zoom calls during class. <laughs> So <laughs> any of those types of behaviors are the what, okay? And those things can cause us to immediately go into judgment, right? Oh, what is he doing? He's disobedient. He's non-compliant. She's um, oppositional. And we like to throw a term or a title to it. But if we can roll over to why and think about what things have been in place for this child. Why do we believe that the child may be performing that way? Is it a skill deficit? Is it that in their current environment that that's the norm? Uh, so when we start more focusing on why, it helps us be trauma focused. Um, so like you said, it would be an awesome and wonderful thing. I will have additional resources for our team coming up this year. Uh, you probably know I did a trauma training this past summer and that seemed to go over pretty well. Had people actually sitting on the floor. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was overstocked. I was like, oh, I didn't think this would go this well. Um, but it definitely starts with that awareness and then giving just teachers um, just a toolkit to just start with structural things first, because the primary focus is how can I calm the brain? So relationships are awesome. Uh, that looking at strength-based approaches. Um, so we want to definitely look at what is the child able to do, even if it's not excellent yet, and drive in on that. I like that you have information that you like to share each time that we communicate. That's like the best way of saying you talk a lot. 
Okay, so <laughs> it's all about the way you frame it, right? So it's all about how you provide, provide that tone, how you provide your wording. So that way you're not adding judgment, but the child is still getting acknowledgement that they're participating. But then you can shape it. Then you can say, hey, when you participate and give us great advice and information, how about your voice tone match mine? Instead of being up here, how about your voice tone be here? And then that way we can all hear you clearly. Instead of you're too loud, I'm going to mute you. You know, um, <laughs> you need to go sit yeah. over here. Yeah. So just some of those types of things uh, that come with practice. But once we're aware of them, we can more often do them and it will build that support and building safety for those kids who have experienced trauma. Rakina, I love your content. <laughs> I think it's just, I just think it's, it's so good because you don't just say like, be more patient, show more grace, but you're giving actual ways that teachers can do it. And that you're also acknowledging that like, this is a skill, Yeah, but the human nature might be for some teachers who might be frazzled. Maybe their elementary class is out of control all day. They're also tired because they're, personal child was sick all night and so you know it's two two o'clock and the same kid is called out so many times and maybe they're feeling like they just want to tell the kid you're being too loud mm -hmm. but I think that you hit it on the head by saying like positive communication is imperative for these kids because the labeling will stick with them it labels will stick with any kid whether they come from a safe family or a traumatic mm -hmm. situation but um, something else I heard that was a really good question that really turned a corner for me in my head this two weeks ago in one of these sessions I was in and it was saying like when a kid is acting out and this is specifically for a kid who has trauma, mm -hmm. but when a kid is acting out, not think like, what do I need to do to make this stop? Although that's obviously a question you need, especially if you've got other kids in the class, but when they, Ooh, this is where our technology starts to be cute. Um, <laughs> But to ask, like, when they're when they are using profanity or trying to draw attention to themselves, the question is to ask, what do they need? Yeah. And I actually like that for all kids, whether they've come from traumatic situations or not, because even if they're 18 year old seniors in your class, K through 12, they're still their brain is still being developed and actually not finished being developed until age 25. And we can even argue yeah. li later. But that's, yes. a other, that's a whole other a lot of research on age 26. Um, so think, I'm pulling for age 26. <laughs> Okay, I'll go with you. I'll go with you on that. But the thing is, and I think that's important for teenagers too, because coming from the high school setting, um, sometimes it's easy to forget. Mm -hmm. And you, there are so mature and you can have such complicated conversations with them that you forget that they are also still trying to manage new situations, manage those emotions, navigate this world of figuring things out still, because you can forget that easily when you're talking to teenagers, because they're so freaking smart. And you can have such great conversation that you forget, okay, this is still a 16 year old, 17 year old child, like literally, I mean, I'm not saying you need to treat them like a child. No, I mean, you're taking but, um, into account that the brain, the frontal lobe, how you think about thinking, how you have perspective taking, yeah. that's not fully developed yet. So yeah. So a kid with trauma, they're going to significantly be more impaired in the areas of what I like to call base brain. So they're going to be focusing a lot on their senses. That's what's strongest for them. So long conversations and asking them why um, doesn't really go over as well. <laughs> no, it's not. And I, I like that you that you're saying like there's a way to redirect the kid without being condescending. Yeah and irritable because you do have to watch your communication with 
with kids that are coming from these foster care situations, orphan care. And really though, um, the definition of complex trauma is risk obviously with physical and emotional and sexual abuse. But I don't think a lot of people understand that natural disasters, traumatic events, including medical interventions, (laughs) long-term hospitalization, those are, et cetera. That is the definition of that. Yes. And And absolutely. And our largest populations are often surrounding neglect. So people don't necessarily always, you know, look at that or them witnessing. I like to make sure people are aware that witnessing a trauma uh, can also alter a perception and, and, and be actual trauma for the for the person. They may not have experienced it directly. So let's not pick it that category either. Domestic violence is definitely on the rise right now during COVID. So. Ugh. Yeah. And so when you're thinking about kind of this influx of new, so to speak, kids or children who will have fresh trauma to work through and process. I'm talking about kids that are outside, maybe foster Mm -hmm. care outside of CPS and those kind of things, but maybe had a parent with Mm -hmm. COVID or dealt, lived in a house with a grandparent who was hospitalized for it or has a familial loss from the situation that we're in. I think, or for, for people that don't realize that they're experiencing trauma, the grief of, maybe their brother not being able to graduate high school and walk across stage, although we are planning to do that. In yeah. August. But yeah. I think there's a lot of grief involved in this pandemic. So what do you think are the implications that we will have with this unfortunate growing number of kids who will be going through this kind of collective experience? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, about that? absolutely. So we, we know we will definitely again, have to continue to keep the lens of the child. Um, and they'll, you know, and I also want to highlight that there'll be staff that will be coming back with similar traumas, you know? Yes. So, so yes. when looking at that, um, without getting into the comparisons again of much trauma is worse, um, it's, it's definitely going to be uh, in the routine. I think that we should can strongly consider having part of our opening sessions and our daily communications uh, where we have a time where they don't necessarily have to share verbally, but that we are providing statements to our staff, statements to our teachers, also mm-hmm. to our children and our students in class, that it's okay if something is bothering you. It's okay if this routine doesn't seem safe yet. It's okay for you to communicate and say, um, right now my mind is actually on my grandmother or right now you know I had to attend such and such funeral virtually I've had to unfortunately myself experience four deaths during this time so there's there's different ways um, to still acknowledge what's happening without rolling over into sympathy but to show empathy um, so I think that teachers should definitely put expectations continue to have expectations, but also have times for talk. Um, And that talk doesn't need to go deep. It just needs to allow kids an outlet. Hey, if there is a moment where you need to place your head down, you won't be penalized. If there is a moment where, you know, you need to step away, here's a cue or a signal that you can give me that you need time. And that means you any action, you know, there won't be, you won't have to provide me an explanation right now. Uh, Just showing some compassion uh, during this time. And it, it shows kids that you're human. Um, and, and that each person, you know, will be dealing with things differently. Uh, I often make the joke sometimes while I'm doing trainings that kids will see you and only associate you with your title. And if 
a child sees you out of your room, if they see you at the grocery store, they're in shock. You know, <laughs> why are you here? Like, like I'm human. I eat as well, you know. Um, and, but that that lets you know that they keep you in a certain category. So the more you can humanize yourself and acknowledge that it's OK for them to see you and your environment as a safe place, then that's going to help with the trauma. Um, well, and it's interesting you say that because my last year of teaching in the classroom and I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, I had two students die in two separate periods within a month from each other. And obviously I'd never experienced that in my career mm-hmm. before. And to this day, I will say that's probably, the, and I, I, I pride myself on having, of having had close classroom cultures, um, just a, a nice banter with my kids, et cetera. But I will say that last year was my closest year to them because like those walls were broken down around that collective trauma that we went through together because <laughs> two separate periods, I came to school on a Monday or a Tuesday and like that desk was empty and we all could not, yeah. you know, we could not see that. We'd been to a funeral of two different teenagers and um, obviously two sets of different students in those classes, but um, there were some tears and like, I'd never cried in front of my kids ever before. But I think that like you just said, that humanizing mm-hmm. factor of us going through that together, talking through it, having counselors come speak and there being a real somber feeling and spirit around it brought us closer. And so I think that that could be one of the silver linings that comes from all of this is that maybe this will break down some of those walls and some of the classrooms that might feel like this is content specific with a relationship on the side and make it more relationship based with, Hey, I'm also going to teach you content. Yes, we we will definitely have to be sensitive to understand that people will be coming back with different views. Um, And also to know that, you know, those who have experienced those traumas, like you stated, um, that it doesn't just end in 30 days Um, (laughs) or it can't be viewed as we had that conversation at the beginning. This is just something we do to start. It's something that you need to put into practice where you do it continuously. Um, Because what we what we know through research is that trauma, the event doesn't leave, but the response is what you can shape. Um, And Mm -hmm. and so it shouldn't just be a startup activity for when we come back. You know, it should be something that we put into normal. uh, I would love for it to be in, in, you know, just integrated into what we do. Um, another thing I think too, to look at is looking at how we provide correction for a child that we, uh, or a person that we know has experienced trauma. Um, because you will, you may see elevated behaviors. Okay. Either that be shut down where they're not talking or communicating or providing input or it could be where you see, you know, verbal outbursts or physical outbursts and having that acknowledgement that it's not necessarily a child who's just being bad um, is something I definitely always push for people to consider to not just jump straight to, well, they require structure and which structure comes extreme discipline. Um, those those two don't necessarily actually pan out. Um, and children who've experienced trauma don't respond well to that type of idea. 
Yeah. So when thinking about discipline and thinking about correction, when you're working with a student who has experienced trauma, um, sometimes our typical practices appear to escalate the behaviors. And that's more so because we sometimes don't take into account of the, you know, the why, why this is happening. And as you stated earlier, what do you need? Um, so just to make sure we continue to just keep that in mind that we're looking at what the, the situation and the circumstances are surrounding what's happening. And as you stated, it is not to make an excuse. It is not to water down outcomes or expectations. Nevertheless, when you're working with a child who is constantly in fight or flight um, and you you know, provide statements or responses that make them feel as though they're being threatened, they will escalate because mm -hmm. that's what the brain is going to do. Uh, it's just like someone cornering you. So I like to have people just kind of look at that perception um, that they view their environment. They're always looking to see if to there's see something that's not, you know, safe in their environment. And unfortunately, that's what their brain does. All day. And to reference what you said earlier as it being a skill that you have to refine, yes. I think it's important and also awkward, I get that, to do role playing if it's not something you're oh, comfortable with or if conflict makes you react ways that you know aren't healthy to your kids or mm -hmm. I think it's good to role play like you know that this one student in your class, once you start to get to know kids, is, you know, it's going to have the same behavior or in a Zoom setting. Right. So then you can kind of role play those situations. Or, or maybe when you don't know your kids yet this summer, you can start role playing. Okay. If uh -huh. this happens in a virtual setting, if we go to intermittent school next year, next year, this is how I can respond. Or even earlier when you, you said the sentence stem of, I like the information that you shared and that you're giving feedback, but let's match my voice. I just think even sentence stems like that are not natural for some people. So to rehearse those and maybe even yeah. look them up or there's a ton of resources out there and you and I can talk after this about linking some of those in the show notes. But I think not just waiting for it to happen, for it to be the first time that you respond, but definitely thinking right. through the different kinds of challenges that can come up, like right. you were saying exactly. earlier, before it happens. It's Exactly. Preventative measures are awesome. Um, and like you said, <laughs> even <laughs> I uh, used to always push and just like teach, teach the skill, review it, model <laughs> it, yeah. and then role play. So it's, it's definitely a skill. It's not, uh, we have to move from the assumption of they should know. Uh, you should know. And we have to move and look at what's actually happening and why. So once we can teach it, we can review it, we can model it ourselves. So I, we have some super creative teachers out there. And I know that, you know, since we're in the, the role right now of doing everything, you know, virtually, uh, this can be a skill that can roll and be part of a teacher's toolbox, where they actually model it and show it what it looks like to do it. Because remember, you have to approach the brain in various ways. This is not a brain that's fully capacity, at full capacity for intellectual portions or for uh, executive functioning. So you have to deal with what do they see? What do they hear? What would it feel like? Because that's gonna be stronger. Those things are going to be the stronger points of how you teach the brain. So after you show it, then ask for the students to model and do a role play of what you've shown. 
Mm-hmm. That is where you see such deep teaching. And now it's starting to become a pattern for the child. So that way you can tie a visual reminder to it. But if you haven't done that work before, it doesn't stick. I uh, tell staff all the time, if just talking to them would alter it, then it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag put that on a shirt and sell it, am I right? I mean, and the thing is, some people have to remember too, even from kids that come from a quote unquote safe home, like that might be the only intentional and implicit modeling mm-hmm. that they ever see around that exactly. behavior. Exactly. Some people, I mean, and, and it's not to knock anybody like that's no, just, there's not. so many different parenting styles out there that some might just, you know, just model. Some might just call it out verbally, but like that modeling of that cannot be left out of the content that's being taught in classrooms, the socio social economic, social, gosh, social emotional part yes. of the classroom is intertwined and connected to what we are actually teaching. They are not two separate things. No, they are and one and the same. Yes. And you can't teach without being relational, like, or right. you can, and all you're doing is creating a miserable experience for those poor kids, teenagers, tweens, whatever's in your class. That's right. sick through every day. And that's for any kid that's in your class. That's not even just for the trauma-based kids. Like, let's that's, make education exactly. where we're connecting with people. Like, who wants to walk into any room of any career or a situation in life and not be connected to the person you're going to see every single day for 10 months straight? Right. That oh. engagement is key. Um, so I love I love your passion behind, you know, looking at the various ways, because we talk about differentiated instruction, but we often only look at that as curricular types of things. No, Social emotional learning is also yes. differentiated. Uh, so you you have to pull in the kinesthetics. You have to reach the brain. You have to reach it. Um, and I keep going back to that because I think it puts a better face on what we work with instead of looking at what is being shown and putting a label to it. Let's work with how we reach the brain. People are more apt and open um, to look at it that way than before getting into all the emotional kind of stuff, you know? Um, well, and I'll never, I'll never, ever, ever forget Rakina. One of my favorite kids, her name was Bonita. She came in mid mid year and I got 17 million warnings from other staff. Like, Oh, just wait till you get this kid. Mm-hmm. She's going to get written up in the first week, da, 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 all the labels, all the stories, all the things. Um, what it did, what was nice about that is it prepped me to know, okay, well, Unfortunately, this kid's going to get stereotyped every single grade if if this is going to be the continuous communication Mm -hmm. around this kid. So she comes in class and the very first day she was aggressive in her communication with me. I mean, I had maybe said two words to her and she was, like I said, aggressive. Mm -hmm. And I was grateful to get the labels that they had before because I reacted in a maybe completely inhuman way of just like totally calm, collected, like, okay, cool. Well, when you're ready, just come on over and I'll give you the, you know, and I think it's, I'll never forget her face. She looks shocked that I did not say like, what'd you say? Mm-hmm. Get over it. You're like, I don't, I don't even know you. I mean, I could have gone off in a million different directions. I just, I'll never forget that story because if I reacted differently that first day, it could have been the same story that she had in every single class and obviously coming from a broken home, et cetera, it just could have been a different story. And not that I reacted the best way to every single kid ever, but I just think it's important to that's that's also a big part of it is not let the kids story follow them if it's a negative narrative, because we got to give kids a a new chance every August, you know, really every day if we're being honest. And, And a lot of times when you're looking at trauma, it's not the fault of the child. 
but the child often pays for it. So that that's another view. I love the fact that you took the information but did not use it to cause additional trauma or to continue that that routine of what she was used to. Because I'm more than certain that that was a learned behavior because it's been reinforced, whether it be negative or positive, she got attention for it. So for you to take a different scope with the information, you know, it's also one of those key factors. So it's one thing to have a reputation, but it's another thing on how you work with it. So I commend you for taking the other route um, and not allowing that. Well, and I certainly did not tell the story to be commended, but thank you. But the, the point is, and the reason why I feel so passionate about it is because the, just think of the things that we can all remember from childhood, the, the nasty things someone said to you in fifth grade, the teacher that was rude or the opposite, the teacher that believed in you, this, the kid that said something to you on the track in, in athletics in seventh grade, you know, like there's just little statements that seemed little at the time that just sunk in that you will never forget. And we're all older we're adults we've got the you know we've got we've gone so far in life and we will never forget those things that they said and so to think about educators who maybe believe the narratives or and it might even be a narrative that's been created in your class mm-hmm. I mean, that kid was aggressive with me for a while until there was an established trust mm-hmm. and I just made it a point I mean at that school particularly most of my population was uh, in the same boat as her. So I was a little more heightened during that year than maybe some of the years I was in a different demographic at a different school, mm-hmm. but that shouldn't change the fact that like, these are the most formative years in a person's life. Hands down. Right. I may, that might be arguable, but to me, the research around the brain and how it's developing, right. just to think that if we, do, if we believe these narratives that people created around these kids and they are that, even if they are teenagers, they are kids yeah. can affect the rest of their lives and be, impacted in their brain about who they are and what they believe I can't help but not be passionate about how we have to really train ourselves on those skills that you said earlier and be inhuman in our in our connections with our kids and I say inhuman because a human way to react is most of the time not the best way to react to kids in your class and again it's not easy and I'm not saying like there's not a thousand factors that come into this conversation but that we acknowledge it and that we are intentional with our communication and our behavior with the kids sitting in our classrooms and in our schools because they deserve it. And like you just said, they didn't ask for the trauma. They didn't ask for their situations and they certainly didn't ask to be young and trying to be navigate stuff. We need to make it the best experience possible. Absolutely. So I love that you acknowledge that trauma hits everyone. It it doesn't matter your gender, your race, your age, your SES. It, It doesn't matter you know, your income level, who your parents are. Mm-hmm. Um, so yep. I, I think it's one of those universal things so that people don't put it in a group that it's only, I only have to do this for a certain group of kids. And that's why I like to stress that it's one in four. Um, because yeah. it's, we often think of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. We often think of, um, you know, you had to have gone through a war before we associate trauma with what something mm-hmm. new. And yeah. that's more so where people put it, you know, just in that category. And you have to understand it's, it's, it's much different. Um, going through Harvey, we still have kids when it rains that they yes. have responses. And people sometimes say they should get over it. You can't compare a trauma. You're not, you know, you, Mm -hmm. you, you have to be able to understand that even if I don't necessarily get what is happening, 
I just need to understand that child's lens. So I, I say that all the time. From the child's lens, what does it look like? And that's what we work with because that's their reality. Um, so just just looking at it for every child, I, I think it's, it's very important. And our staff who, who will be returning, like you said, with intermittent learning, yeah. it's going to be constant reminders of COVID for a while. Um, you know, yeah. it, there's, there's yeah. going to be constant reminders. So just being sensitive that we don't move into the get over it. Here we are now. Um, acknowledge it doesn't mean you're sugarcoating it doesn't mean that you're lessening expectations Mm -hmm. but it does mean that you're acknowledging that there's something different so that the child can feel comfortable and safe it's all about safety first that's our bottom line awareness and safety first and then we can move into the deeper stuff later (laughs) and I think I think it's good that you brought up the adults because that might be a whole separate slash connected topic that this is this is a trigger for adults mm-hmm. too and obviously adults will be more impacted by covid in terms of like the actual implications of the physical side the sick side the health side etc but then not to mention like um, this could be connected to what they're dealing with too and then if we do have an intermittent school year next year like some medical professionals are saying like again the remote learning affects this re- new remote working mm-hmm field that we are all in that we didn't know we were ever going to be in when we were in college. We never, ever, ever thought as an educator, I will work from home, you know? Um, but like I said, that's a whole separate topic. And this has been probably heavy for <laughs> this is heavy content for some people. So let's move into um, the fun and lighthearted <laughs> side of the podcast, if you're ready. Uh, okay. So what's one favorite thing in education right now? Um, I'm actually loving all of the uh, memes that are out right now that are supporting teachers. <laughs> um, I'm loving seeing teachers in their robes and with bonnets on and but they're educating and they're saying, you know what, although you have a large load and things are because you're taking care of family, and you may have kids who are also in school age, um, but you're doing it. So I'm, I'm loving the encouragement and the support, the overwhelming support that you're seeing from just people in industry, just everyone, not just educators who are encouraging our teachers. Yeah. Love it. I love it. I agree with you. Those memes keep it light <laughs> in a heavy time. Okay. So what's one favorite thing in general in life right now? doesn't have to be educated or work. Uh, right now, I'm really addicted to my, um, my Google mi- music playlist. <laughs> Oh yeah, okay. I'm I'm loving it. I didn't even know Google. Yeah, Prime there's it. the Google Music playlist, and you can link it with your Prime, your Amazon Prime stuff too. So I'm loving it because that and um and uh, I'm gonna tell on myself, but I've been loving that with the, the concerts. There's been so many free concerts on Instagram, yeah. and as soon as they finish with the concerts, all the music goes to either Google Music or Title. So I'm just loving it. Like, oh. just, I'm like yeah, no I'm like, this is amazing. I get to go for free, you know, <laughs> getting all of this stuff. I don't have to spend all of that money on those concert tickets to be 1,000 million feet away from that. Right. So that's one of, my, one that's of the things funny. I'm loving right now. <laughs> Good to know. Okay, and the last question: What is a fa- a favorite book? I'm I'm moving away from saying your favorite book because people stress yes. about that. So, what is one of your um, one books? of my favorite books is my thoughts on Victoria's Confessions 
It's actually by um, okay. Dr. Bridget Hilliard. And what it does is just, it just has a compilation of like different topics, um, just daily types of things. And it has positive affirmations and confirmations in it. And I just love it because it's all in one place. And I just pull it. If it's something I'm thinking about, something that's kind of heavy or something that's light, um, it's all in there. And I love her. She's, she's my mom. <laughs> And so yeah, and I just, I I love, just it. love it. So that's one of my favorites right now. If I get to thinking a little off. I pull that out. <laughs> okay. I'm going to yeah. have to link it. I'll link it in the show notes. I I'm all about positive yes. affirmations. Well, Rakina, I'm just so grateful you came on. It was like, a, like I said at the beginning, a no brainer to have you just the work you're doing and the awareness that you bring to such important content that unfortunately I don't know that we've all had enough professional learning about. And mm-hmm. so um, obviously it's going to be a focus for client ISD in the coming year and, and it should be. Um, but I just appreciate the awareness and the actual tangible steps that people can take um, as educators to help our kids that are already in a traumatic situation before all this happened. And then hopefully being able to now help the greater population of all of us going through this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all that you do. And um, I look forward to always talking to you again. Thank you. Absolutely. I was very happy. You know, I get passionate about this topic. So uh, yeah, (laughs) it's in my heart. (laughs) Well, I will see you around friend. Thank you. You too. Bye. Okay. Bye. Wow, I'm so grateful for Rakina coming on our podcast to talk about this timely and highly informative part of education. Her specific actionable steps to supporting students who've been through trauma were so helpful. I'm always happy to hear that trauma-informed teaching involves showing grace to students while exercising patience. Awareness and psychoeducation is the start of working to support every student because trauma is not as rare as one may think. Remember that opposition and trauma are not one and the same and that trauma actually biologically alters the brain, the experience of a person and child's lens. And last, ask yourself why instead of what when a student is choosing some challenging behaviors in your class. I hope you enjoyed the content and had some takeaways today. If you like our podcast, leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Additionally, show some love on social media with the hashtag Kleinversations. And if you think this content would help someone else on your staff, share it with them. As always, and until next time, let's take our learning and transform the world.